1: Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, episode 41. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and I don't know about you, but I love this magical time of year where if you listen, just listen, look, there it is. The cry of hundreds and hundreds of idiots complaining that due to political correctness that they can't say Christmas anymore, even though they just said it, immediately proving their point wrong. Nothing makes me happier than the sound of hundreds of British nationalists complaining that multiculturalism has stopped them celebrating the birth of a Jewish preacher in the Middle East. Well, I thought nothing made me happier than that, but it turns out it makes me extremely pleased seeing that Zach Goldsmith, who looks like a cross between El Dorado the soap opera and a hush puppy, is having a worse 2016 than most other people. Yes, as a protest against the government's plans to allow a third runway at Heathrow, Goldsmith stood down as a Tory MP, triggering a by-election in Richmond Park, so that he could stand as an independent MP instead. And it seemed local voters thought his move was so brave, they honoured it by seizing the chance to vote for someone else. Yeah, there is no better way to protest against the third runway at Heathrow than by making sure your by-election plans also never take off. It's almost as if everyone remembers that Zach Goldsmith ran a hugely racist campaign to be mayor of London a few months ago, or how his pro-Brexit views meant that he didn't really represent the mostly pro-Remain views of his constituents, or how it's impossible to have sympathy about making a racist unemployed when he comes from a family of billionaires and married into another family of billionaires. Zach Goldsmith was the political version of that village idiot no one liked who thinks they can fight the monster that's terrorising everyone and then when they die trying, everyone just cheers and thinks, great, now we can get the monster hunter in that we wanted to in the first place. Albeit, obviously, a really boring monster hunter. Goldsmith lost his majority of 23,000 votes by 2,000 votes to a Liberal Democrat, Sarah Olney. Yes, the party, so centre and nothingy that a canary couldn't smell them, are now back from the dead like the world's most tedious zombies. Not so much searching for brains, just attention and a disenfranchised voting public that have realised a zero is greater than a lolloping fob who thinks you can pick which protest songs you play on a dog whistle. Other things that have greatly cheered me up this past week include Lord Freud, Minister in the Department of Work and Pensions, and villain from a Dickensian story who has finally realised he's not fit for work. Maybe Lord Freud resigned due to a sudden realisation that years of inflicting the bedroom tax, aka the overcrowding rat experiment, but for people was a truly cruel policy, or perhaps he just resigned because he wanted to spend more time exploring all the rooms in his eight bedroom country mansion or his 1.9 million London home. I guess if you are that much of a shit, you need that many rooms to do evil maniacal laughing in, right? I also enjoyed former Conservative MP and constantly scared pet, Nicky Morgan, criticising Theresa May's £995 leather trousers that she wore for a newspaper photo shoot. While I think it's archaic to comment on our female Prime Minister's attire in the way that no one would ever have commented on with a male Prime Minister, it's not a great idea to flaunt trousers that are more than some people's monthly salaries and then pretend you're in touch with those very same people. Also, wearing expensive leather trousers does actually say that you will take bull from people who charge enough for it. And it's even stranger to spend £1,000 on a hide when she's always told people that if they don't have one of those, they have nothing to fear. So what is she so afraid of? And lastly, I was very very pleased that Austria opted against voting for the far-right neo-Nazi Norbert Hofer as president, and instead went for former green head Alexander van der Bellen. Well, I don't mean he had a green head, though that would really be a rejection of Hofer's Nazi party. No, I mean Vanderbellen der Bellen is an independent environmentalist, so essentially Austria voted for air and rain rather than Aryan, for less fumes rather than Ein Führer, and instead of nationalism, they want zero emissions. You get what I mean. But more on all of that a little bit later on. Thank you for listening to what is now the 41st week of partly political broadcast this year. How on earth have I done that? There's barely been anything to talk about, Right. Well guys, let's be honest, I couldn't have done it without you. Well, actually, I could have done, but it'd be really, really pointless. Though when's that ever stopped anyone from putting things online before? You're welcome, the internet. Uh, Partly Political Broadcast is now on 50 iTunes reviews, which is absolutely amazing, so thank you to all of you who've done that, Uh, it's very, very much appreciated. Uh, However, there is, of course, still room for more reviews. I mean, I assume there is still room for more reviews. I don't really know how Apple works. I'm not its dad. Um, I mean, why not try and give this show so many reviews that it crashes iTunes? How brilliant would that be? You could just type all the reviews as this is for all the low-wage Chinese workers, and then when it all collapses and you can't hear this show anymore, we could all spend time ruminating on the best ways to protest while still keeping privileged things that we like. God, it's really hard, isn't it? Anyway, so please review this show, and thanks, thanks tons to uh, Mad Cyclist, whoever that is, who pledged on the Patreon this week. Uh, if you want to sponsor this show too, you can also do it at patreon.com forward slash parpol uh, and I'm going to be popping up the first bonus thing on there later this week, so get on the case quickly. Also, I asked on the Facebook group about what you'd like the last podcast of this year to be, because I thought, well, there's, there's tons of roundups that are going to happen, um, and I thought maybe it'd be more interesting if I did uh, a podcast, say, on the few good things that actually happened in 2016. Or, you know, I could just sum up the entire year by screaming into a bin for 45 minutes. I mean, what would you prefer to listen to? Let me know. And here is how I find out that most partly political broadcast listeners are big Screamcore fans, and I have to spend all of January voiceless. Also, as you probably noticed, uh, I didn't do anything on the US uh, election and Trump last week, uh, and I haven't this week either, because as I've said before, there's so many good US podcasts about it, I sort of wonder if you need me to talk about it as well. Um, I am going to do an update next week, but if you're desperate for a weekly Parpol Bro Trump chat, do let me know, otherwise I'll keep it uh, slightly less frequent. Oh, and um, there was going to be a question of the week this week about what you thought Zach Goldsmith should do as a career next, but I realised I asked you that very same question back in May when he failed to become. London Mayor, <laughs> he's had such a shit year, <laughs> oh wait, so have all of us, uh, still though, <laughs> Zach Goldsmith with your face like a posh Gumby losing two elections, <laughs> On this week's show, uh, I'm talking to Emma Runswick, who is both a medical student and the chair of the British Medical Association's Medical Student Conference. Uh, She talked to me all about how underfunded the NHS is and in what a big crisis is currently in. Um, It wasn't a great Skype line for that conversation, I'm afraid, so do brace yourself for that. Uh, And then once your trousers are secure, get your ears prepared for it too. Uh, Also, I'm going to be looking at some of the worldly political happenings over the last week. And of course, there's bloody well some of this as well. This week, Brexit visits the Supreme Court, which sounds like a very, very shit children's book. Uh, and the Supreme Court isn't, as I thought, somewhere where Diana Ross judges people's harmonies. No, instead it's where the government have appealed the High Court's ruling that Parliament must have a say on triggering everyone's second least favourite article after anything by Toby Young. Yes, that's right, Article 50. Government lawyer James Edie is spending the next four days making the case to 11 Supreme Court justices. Enough for an incredible football team, if only because they're so used to delivering penalties. Now, I'm not going to pretend to understand all the legal terms that have been used in day one of this trial, um, but it does seem that ED has been trying to argue that certain phrasing in the European Communities Act 1972 suggests that either Parliament doesn't need a say, or that Parliament has chosen what to have a say on already. uh, And at this stage, it sounds like more straws have already been clutched than an excitable kid with a mega-sized thick milkshake. What is worth looking at is that the Supreme Court may need to know what the government is actually planning with Brexit in order to make a decision on the triggering of Article 50, which might mean that we actually get some idea of what the plan is, if there is one at all. And it's also worth noting that all of the Supreme Court justices have had death threats against them, making you wonder if the BBC should maybe just do a six part primetime series explaining what British sovereignty actually is. According to some newspapers, yeah, go on, guess which ones? Go on, go on, guess which ones? Go on, yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, The judges have uh, connections with Europe, and so therefore they can't be trusted to uh, deliver a verdict on a case like this. I mean, what does connections with Europe even mean? What, one of them likes Crassons and the other one's cousins did the drums for final countdown? It's still very bizarre that the government are even pretending that British law is frustrating the will of the people. I didn't know that many British people were desperate to break the law, unless of course it's speeding through an average speed camera route on an empty motorway at night, because let's face it, that is just bullshit. Equally worth noting is that Justice Secretary Liz Truss is nowhere to be seen through any of this. If, as former Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli once said, justice is truth in action, then maybe Liz Truss just thinks she doesn't have to drop any realism bombs if she's completely and utterly inactive. I'll do a more in-depth look on the hearing next week. Outside of the court, Brexit secretary and tired cloud David Davis made the sort of suggestion that makes you realise most conspiracy theories about government plots have to be absolute bollocks because evidence shows that it's generally just a surprise that most of them aren't constantly walking into glass walls thinking there's nothing there. Davis's idea was that we could leave the single market, right get this, get this, and then Britain could pay into the EU budget for access to the single market. Yeah, nice one mate! You know what we could have done to get the same result, but much, much cheaper? Yeah, that's right. Stay in the EU. Ah. How about, David Davis, you remove yourself from Parliament, but then pay money into Parliament to be part of it, but with much, much less of a say? I think we'd all like that. However, David Davis saying that idea, that ridiculous idea, did actually cause a surge in the pound again. So maybe, if David Davis suggests soon that we could maybe get rid of free movement, but then pay some money to keep free movement, we could all be back on track and vow as a nation just not to speak about the last year, and hopefully it will disappear. David Davies' own advisor Raul Ruperol is pro-Brexit, but has said that Brexit will be a dead weight on the British economy. I'm sure that despite that sort of advice, David Davis will aim rather than to avoid a sinking ship, uh, just to sink the ship and then pay for some sort of access to a new ship while we're still under the water flailing around. Meanwhile, Labour leader in Bernard Cribbin's double, Jeremy Corbyn, says that Labour will not vote against triggering Article 50, but will aim to amend any bill in order to save single market access and workers' rights. But he's also refused to back the idea that Parliament should have a say on triggering Article 50 in the first place, meaning that Jeremy Corbyn is, I think, the answer to a very, very underwhelming riddle. I am not for Brexit, but I am for Brexit. I wish to control Article 50, but not to stop Article 50. I wish to stay in the single market, but also not. Who am I? What do you do when the National Health Service is sick? Well, it seems that according to the government, you treat it like that obscure relative who'd just be too much time and money to look after, so best for everyone if they just die. Health Secretary and shaved sloth Jeremy Hunt has criticised the head of NHS providers for calling for more money, saying that it's a misjudge because, I'm sure, in Jeremy Hunt's head, the NHS deal with all the cuts they keep getting by asking nurses to put a suture stitch over them and boom, fixed. But while the government have promised an increase in NHS funding of £10 until 2020, fact-checkers have proved that if you take inflation into account, spending will actually only increase by £4.5 So if it is a cash injection the government are giving, they very much administered an underdose. Hunt was quoted as saying that the NHS makes us proud to be British and I guess yes, there really is nothing more British than somehow having smug pride in something failing because we neglected to look after it. So this week I spoke to Emma Runswick. Emma is a medical student in Salford and chair of the British Medical Association's Medical Student Conference. Though she did tell me to say that she spoke to me in a personal capacity and also to mention that she's a Labour member, which you'll probably be able to guess as, you know, she actually gives a shit about the NHS. I saw Emma speak on a panel at the QED conference uh, back in October about post-truth politics and she was so very knowledgeable about the current state of her health service that I wanted to get her on the show for ages. Uh, But before the interview, I'm afraid that this jingle sadly needs to make a return. excuses okay pathetic excuses are back this week apparently they should have come back last week uh but as many of you have told me but still that they're back for this week uh, here we go uh the skype line uh between me and emma was really rubbish and very quiet and there's quite a lot of noise in the background and i'm still really rubbish at technology i'm sorry um the ever wonderful mark struthers who is an absolute hero has been a complete gem in enhancing what he can uh, but if you're listening to this on public transport emma may sound very quiet However, what she says is very, very worth hearing. So uh, maybe save it and listen to it when you're no longer on transport. Um, I, I was going to say when you're no longer moving, but that sounds a bit like I'm wishing you to be die. I started by asking Emma about her training, as I have absolutely no idea how you learn to do a real important job like being a doctor or a nurse. Uh, and then we get into the politics stuff. So stick with it. Here's Emma. So hi, Emma. Uh, you're a medical student. And how, how long have you been training as a medical student for?
2: Um, so I'm in my third year of, of medicine, and um, that happens to be my fourth year of university because I, I did a psychology degree in the middle of my training. Right. Um, but uh, that that means that I am currently doing clinical work in hospital placements.
1: Right. Okay. So you did a uh, you did a degree in the middle of your medical training. So that's so you've done four years of medical training and three years of degree as well. Um. No. No. Um,
2: I um, two years of medicine, and then a year of psychology. Um, and, and the way it was called an intercalated degree, and you do sufficient work in that subject to gain a degree in that subject, and, and then you come back into medicine. And huge numbers of medical students do that either at the SC level or at masters level. Um. And I, and I did some research in, in behaviour change, um, how we can train healthcare professionals to talk about behaviour change with patients, um, which is a particular interest of mine. Um, before I came back into medicine.
1: Right, and, and how long? How does the sort of pathway into? Uh, I'm assuming this is is to go towards uh, being a doctor or to go towards working in a specific area. And um, how how does it work?
2: So. Um, all medical students um, will do four five or six years of medical school and um, so the four-year courses are for graduates uh, the five-year courses are normal and then some medical schools have six year courses and um, when you graduate you do two years of the foundation program so you are now a qualified doctor and um, working in hospitals and being paid But you rotate through different specialties to experience different things and to gain a a, a wide range of experience and and meet competencies that we expect to see from all doctors. You then apply to further training programs. So that might be um, a core medical or core surgical training program. It could be a run through training program, such as in obstetrics and gynaecology. Um, And there are lots of other pathways. Um, but that normally takes, um, you know, six years, sometimes more, um, to train to be a specialist.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of work, isn't it? I, it's huge admiration uh, for yourself and, and anyone taking it up because um, it's quite quite a, a course to take on, uh, isn't it? To know that you've got to dedicate that much of your life uh, to it, I think. Um, but so you're, and you spend quite a lot of time. So you said you're currently doing training in hospitals. Placements. So you're you're on the wards uh, already, and uh, I mean, what I wanted to ask you about is is there's been a lot of criticism about the NHS wanting more funding. Uh, Jeremy Hunt this week has sort of said that the NHS, uh, the people that have been asking for a are, are ridiculous and 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 Philip Hammond's not offered any more funding in the autumn statement. Um, I mean, from your placements alone and people you're talking to, does it does it feel like the NHS has got enough money?
2: No, it doesn't. Um the NHS def- definitely hasn't got enough funding. Um, and there are a couple of factors in that. Um, one is about how much absolute funding we have, uh, and, and one is about where that funding goes. Um, so the NHS is, is remarkably efficient um, in comparison to the healthcare systems. Uh, we spend a, a very small proportion of our, our GDP, eight or nine percent um, on healthcare in this country and for that provide access to everybody free at the point of use um, and, and, and achieve fairly excellent health, health outcomes um, and the commonwealth um, group did some research in 2013 I think was the last report they did um, and marked us to be the best healthcare system in the world. Wow. Um, Unfortunately, as the funding is frozen, um, there there tend not to be any cuts as such, but as the funding is frozen and demand rises about 4% each year, um, we are beginning to to struggle a lot. Um, And since we've had the Nicholson Challenge, which was a... uh, uh, efficiency savings that the NHS had to find of 20 billion pounds, and Simon Stevens's plan, which again uh, asked us to achieve efficiency savings, um, we're now beginning to very uh, to, to struggle an awful lot with uh, staff budgets, um, in in particular, um, and places are uh, hospitals are beginning to. Um, try and reduce the number of staff, um, closed beds, wards, services sometimes, um, and the sustainability and transformation plans, which are essentially about ensuring that every area has a balanced budget, are going to see some hospitals closed completely um, because we do not have funding
1: to keep them open. Um,
2: and in some places, because we do not have the staff, open so, yeah. yeah
1: because there's sort of uh, you hear quite a lot from from newspapers and from from politicians as well that you know the NHS are, are having what do they call them? target failures I think is the way they put it um you know in 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 various areas of, of you know reaching the amount of people they sh- amount of patients they should do in certain amount of times but surely quite a lot of that is to do with the lack of funding in those areas that means there aren't enough staff that they means that then then can't see enough patients and that kind of creates a catch-22 doesn't it I guess you can't reach the targets if you don't have the staff to help you reach the targets.
2: Absolutely, um, and it perpetuates because when you don't reach the targets, you're fined, and then, of course, you don't have enough money to pay staff to make sure that you reach the targets next time. Um, there's, there are other factors in those targets as well, and um, things like demand. So if you're an A&E, and uh, an A&E uh, not you know, in the next town up from you has closed or is not available during the night time anymore or has become an urgent care centre, suddenly your demand for your services increases dramatically and um, without any increase in staff. Um, for some people, for uh, some areas, that is sufficient to push them over the edge into reaching all of their targets. Um, so there's a, there's a mixture of factors, some of which are about funding, some of which are about staff which of course is inherently related to funding and some of which is about demand um, and and particularly the, the closures um, or uh, inavailability of other hospitals and um, we we tend to struggle a lot of the moment at throughput of the, in the hospitals right. so um, if you can't discharge people from the wards particularly into social into social care, um, which has been completely decimated. So you can't discharge them into a nursing home or a, a, a respite home or, or back to their families because there isn't sufficient care in place for them to go home. Um, and that means you can't admit people into the beds that those people are in. So you can't admit people from the A&E or uh, the medical assessment unit um, or for uh, planned surgery. Um, and that means that you can't then bring people in at the other end of A and which leads to you know the pictures that you might well have seen of, of ambulance crews waiting to, to hand over patients in the absolute
1: emergency department. That's ridiculous. So, is it, so it's underfunding across the board that is then causing a huge backlog. That is that. That I mean, that's really horrible. Because I saw, I think um, there was a, a tweet going around last night. Not that you should ever get your news from Twitter, but uh, that was saying that there were no last night there were no uh, intensive therapy unit beds left for children uh, in across the country, which is so terrifying.
2: It is. It's absolutely terrifying. Um, but it's what happens when you put beds, um, and it, it's it's really unfortunate. But it's not just intensive care beds that have. Have gone but to set down beds, um, so you can't pass people on again. Um, and that means that when the winter pressures come and the spike comes with bronchitis and um, and other winter diseases, and um, that you really struggle. Um, and I know that the uh, paediar- uh, paediatric doctors in London last night. And we're having to admit to private hospitals, um, and that some places were were discussing uh, whether we'd have to fly um, British children to hospitals in France or Ireland, and um, if if we were really desperate, um, because if you've not got some you know, a bed for them here, they they still need the care. Um, so yes, it is, is it absolutely terrifying. Um, and there are lots of different departments um, in the NHS which are on their knees. Um, mental health especially, that's an ongoing problem where we regularly send children you know, hundreds of miles away to, to access a bed in, in mental health services, uh, particularly children, but also adults. Um, you know, there are so many places which are... Underfunded, understaffed, um, and
1: don't have the facilities. That's really, really depressing. I mean, it, I was just just go back to your you're saying that some doctors last night, for example, would have to admit children to to private hospitals. How does how does that work? So the private hospitals then charge the NHS.
2: Yes, yes, and um, and they charge far more than it costs to put them in an NHS bed
1: right so yeah so that's the whole thing is just then costing even more and then causing the nhs to be even more under it's a, it's a horrible slippery slope and uh, and and how much how much of a threat is the 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 further privatization of the nhs because i've i've read a lot in the last few weeks about even more contracts being handed out to virgin care um you know i think one was for 700 million pounds in the in the bath and, and and north somerset area um you know is is this how damaging is this to the NHS that this is happening?
2: And um, I think it's it's extremely damaging to the NHS, um, and this is one of the it's kind of links into the point I was making about where the funding is spent, and um, because the process of privatisation and then privatisation itself, uh, companies running NHS services, um, are, are both in, in my view inherently wasteful, and um, the tendering process. Um, that enables private companies to bid for services um, it is, is a waste of clinicians' time and therefore money. Um, we have to put together uh, uh, details of what that job involves um, and allow people to uh, show how they might be able to provide that service, including NHS services who already provide those services have to say, oh, well, we can do this job. Um, and often that devotes, um the, the time of clinicians who really should be still performing the service. Um, we then often hire accountants or um, consultancy companies and so on to, to run that process for us. Again, and we have to pay those, those organisations money. And then at the end, if a private company wins the contract, then the money that we pay the private company, some of that is siphoned off as profit. Right. Then, because they have to make money, they're a private company. So they, they make their bid for how much they need to be paid to provide a service, and then some of it disappears into the pockets of whoever owns the company. And... the. the The cost implication of this is absolutely massive. So in 1991, um, the percentage of the NHS budget, which was spent on administration, was about 5%. Now, there's always going to be some admin cost in the NHS. Sure. We need to organise our services. Um, Bureaucracy is is there to make sure things run smoothly. Um, But now we're approaching 14%. 14% 14% of the NHS budget spent on these kinds of uh, transaction costs, which are completely avoidable. Um, that would be completely avoided if we did not have an internal market or, indeed, an external market that private companies could fit into. And the extent of the private finance initiatives, um, those schemes where we have asked for uh, private investment into new hospitals and facilities so that capital expenditure is kept off public sector borrowing balance sheets, and it has actually meant that, that we are paying back billions and billions of pounds that private companies never put into these, these hospitals. And it, it is completely obscene, the amount of money that is being siphoned from the NHS, um, as a subsidy to the
1: private sector. I mean, because I, I don't think people realise that. So, you know, I mean, you, you mentioned sort of uh, the, the, the private finance, is it private finance initiatives? PFI, which, which, you know, you know the acronym for. Um, but, you know, we hear of NHS trusts and PFI schemes. I don't think anyone actually realises what they are and what they mean. But uh, as you're saying there, they're not, they're not owned by the NHS. They're all private schemes themselves, aren't they?
2: Indeed, so uh, it means that the hospital is owned by a private company and that we rent it from them. Um, and often in- included in those those the terms are things like um, we also have to buy a maintenance contract from them or a cleaning contract from them, um, which pushes up the price, you know, massively. Um, it often also means that we can't make changes to the buildings because we don't own them. So if, if services need to change. Um, and we want to, to make changes to the hospital. We can't because the NHS doesn't own the hospital. Um, so it's got uh, service delivery implications as well as cost implications, though the cost implications are obviously absolutely massive. Um, you know, this is a, a form of guaranteed profit for building companies. I'm um, often the banks and so on who bought the schemes from the original builders. I mean, we're in a, a surreal situation where many hospitals are still paying the Royal Bank of Scotland for PFI schemes, despite the fact that the...
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: Government
1: partially owns the Royal Bank of Scotland. Yeah, it's it, it bizarre. I mean, you know, I think, especially as a lot of the argument seems to be for, for you know, privatising NHS seems to be the argument of, oh, well, the NHS aren't reaching their targets, which is, of course, because of underfunding. But the more you privatise, the more it's going to be underfunded. And and uh, again, that's sort of the slippery slope idea, which I, I just gives them more reason to privatise things, uh, and then it ends up in an even worse situation.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of the arguments that that people make for privatisation is is about their efficiency. Um, but any look at other countries who have privatised systems, um, I mean, obviously the worst example is is the USA. But but even in other parts of Europe or Australia, um, we can see from from the uh, statistics that they are less efficient than the NHS. And that is inherent in their nature, because they have um, these elements of of tendering, of contracting, that that cost money. But they organise their health services in a different way. Um, And I, and I, I really don't believe that moving towards those models, as we increasingly are, particularly under the sustainability and transformation plans, um, I, I really don't believe that, that moving towards those models will save us any money, will improve care, um, or, or fix the funding problem.
1: And do you think that the the privatisation is, is the main area that's, that's sort of hindering how the NHS is being funded at the moment? Because, I mean, there's been a lot of... And I should say that, personally, I, I think it's complete nonsense, and I've read up on it, but there, there's been a lot in the papers about how much damage is caused by health tourism. Um is there any truth to that at all?
2: Um, there's very little truth to that. Health tourism does cost us some money. Um, I think it's less than one percent of the budget. And um, I would have to to, to Google it. Um, or you know, and, and look up the exact figure. And um, and I understand that in some hospitals there are specific problems um, with with people being. I suppose almost trafficked um, from from other areas uh, to use NHS services but it is tiny absolutely tiny amount of money um, especially con, con, in comparison to the costs for example of the market or of privatisation or of um, you know you know, the situation we were talking about before where we can't discharge people into social care is, is often colloquially called um, bed blocking. You know, those are major costs in our NHS. Um, health tourism, not at all. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of danger around focusing on health tourism. And um, there's, there's partially the, the aspects around uh, racial profiling which is increasingly a problem, I think, in in a post-Brexit UK, people are looking for somebody to blame, and you know, we are not going to ask every single person for their passport. We are going to ask people who sound a bit foreign, who are black or brown, and um, who have uh, foreign-sounding names, and so on. I think that's really dangerous, and, and I think you know doctors will probably.
1: In, in lots of cases, refuse to do that because it's has such a massive impact on the doctor-patient relationship. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I totally. I mean, it, it, to me personally, as I said, it, it sounds like a ridiculous and, and really offensive idea. But I, I mean, there's also, I, I presume, you're saying that admin costs in the NHS have gone up uh, considerably. Surely, um, having to check everyone's passports would increase admin costs even more. Having to chase countries for payments and things like that would increase even, you know, even more.
2: Well, yeah. So um, we already do reclaim costs from people who have used NHS services whilst here on holiday or you know other reasons, um, and other countries do the same for us. So under the uh, European Health Insurance Card system, um, if you go to Spain or uh, Germany or any other country, and you have to use their health service, um, you don't pay any money. Um, the government in that country we claim it from the uk we do the same to other countries and um, we have agreements with some non-eu countries as well um, and and that is an admin cost but it is an admin cost that we should we should use you know that we should have because of the contributory principle unfortunately if we're trying to start if, if we're going to start um enforcing regular and um, Identity checks essentially, and um, we, we have a couple of risks. One, that the cost of doing that will far outstrip the benefit, um, and two, that we will uh, get into a situation where people are, do not want to come to hospital when they need to because they do not have the correct identity paper. So that will include poor British people who don't have passports, it will include and um, foreigners it will in, it will include some people hardly any people but some people who are here illegally or who are asylum seekers and so on but we want those people to seek help because if they don't seek help they become a public health risk you know so if if somebody has come back from visiting their family in zambia and they live in the uk normally um They panic because they know that their identity check is going to be difficult. Um, And they have a series of infectious diseases, symptoms, but they don't want to come to hospital. Then all of a sudden you've got a person who's untreated in the community with an infectious disease. Um, And I think when politicians talk about these people in a way that is very populist, they forget
1: these people are ill. And we'll be back with Emma in a minute, but first, a brand new section, because politics have actually been happening in places other than the UK this week. I know, right? So, introducing... Hardly Global Broadcast. With big global events happening in Austria, Italy and New Zealand this week, I thought it would be handy to have a super quick guide as to what any of them are all about, because while we in the UK expect everyone to know all our business and dance to our often awful tunes, other countries selfishly keep getting ignored by UK media and won't speak in English all the time, so how the hell are we meant to know what any of it means? Well, fear not, because I will be your Marco Pono, your Ferdinand R. Magellan, and your Christopher Columbus as I explain how things are rubbish in other countries as well. Austria! First up, as I mentioned before, is Austria, or as I like to call it, a Great Germany tribute act with extra mountains. Alexander van der Bellen is now Austria's new president, which is, all in all, a largely ceremonial role, operating under instruction from the Austrian Chancellor and Parliament, even though they formally do have the power to dissolve the National Council at will, which is sort of their House of Commons. Uh, Being able to dissolve the National Council at will maybe makes me wonder, how big is the glass of water you'd need for that? So while the Austrian president isn't hugely important for the politics of the country, the fact that the candidates from the main parties, the Social Democrats and the Austrian People's Party, uh, got knocked out really early on in the presidential elections, that left just the far-right Freedom Party and independent but also sort of Green candidate, van der Bellen, and that says an awful lot about how the public might vote in the 2018 general election. As I said on a previous podcast during the first round of the presidential elections, the candidate who failed to win, Norbert Hofer from the Freedom Party, is basically a neo-Nazi with a new coat of paint. And yes, obviously he lost, and that means that everyone in the world, all on Twitter and Facebook, have made the joke that Austria is now the country that actually fights fascism, which is so very funny. But also, it's sadly not entirely true. While Alexander van der Bellen won with 53% of the votes, The fact that Hoffa got 46.7% of the votes isn't really a great sign for the western world's lurch to the far right. In fact, it's probably a small swastika-shaped sign, and the lurch very much looks like one that might happen on the Starship Enterprise in a way that makes you really worry about what the crew is going to encounter. Not only is Hoffa anti-immigrant, but also anti-EU. And one of the Freedom Party members on Vienna City Council, Anton Madelik, is quoted as saying that Nigel Farage's appearance on Fox News, saying that Hoffer would hold an EU referendum in Austria if he won, actually hindered Hoffer's campaign. That's hilarious. Austria is actually very pro-EU, and Madelik has asked that Nigel Farage doesn't interfere in Austria's internal affairs ever again. Hilarious. Farage is appearing more and more like a school bully trying his best to join a biker gang or actual crime syndicate and being repeatedly told to fuck off by grown-ups. In a pattern repeated all over the globe, Hoffer's votes came mostly from rural Austrian voters, while van der Bellen came from city dwellers. This year has really made me rethink wanting to protect the countryside. Hopefully Hoffer's not knockback will last and any work Van does leads to those who voted against him to actually become fans. Otherwise, if the Orwell-esque name Freedom Party gains strength, then Austria face a very, very scary vote in 2018. Italy! Over to Italy. Swoosh! Imagine a little plane going around a map with a little red line behind it, and then imagine all the people online saying that those are chemtrails and all the arguments that follow. Anyway, Italy has just had a major referendum on the political future of its country, voting no to a whole bunch of constitutional reforms and causing the Prime Minister Matteo Renzi to resign. Now, before you try and play that very fun game that we all play of working out how and where this all fits in with current political trends, here is a little wee bit of background. Firstly, Matteo Renzi is part of the Democratic Party and was an unelected Prime Minister after his party overwhelmingly backed a reform proposal that Renzi had made, causing previous Prime Minister Enrico Letta to resign. Italy has been in constant economic stagnation, just like my savings account, since the 2008 global crash, and Renzi came into office with loads of ideas of how to tackle that, including selling off tons of luxury state cars on eBay I know, I missed that one, I think I was too busy looking at Spider-Man memorabilia uh, forcing chief executives of state-owned companies to resign and replacing them mostly with female business leaders, yeah go Renzi you feminist, and announcing a programme to kickstart infrastructure in Italy, which made the European Commission forecast that their economy Economy would start to grow by next spring. Nice work. However, of course, because not everyone's good or bad, they're sometimes they're both, um, he also pushed through some very, very controversial education reforms that were opposed by students and teachers alike and they're still unhappy with. And The referendum this week was on a constitutional reform that would have reduced the size of the Italian Senate from 315 members to just 100. Renzi's plan was that that would streamline the Italian government, but opposing voices said that it would give him, as Prime Minister, far, far too much power in a rather scary way. In the same way, if I chopped off my arms and stomach, I'd streamline myself, but ultimately it would be pretty dangerous and ill-advised. This reform was never very popular, and 59.11% of voters voted against it, and Matteo Renzi therefore immediately announced his resignation. So rather than this being a vote against the establishment, it was actually mostly young people voting to keep the establishment exactly how it is. However, what this does all mean is that public money might now have to be used to bail out banks as 5 billion euros of debt are owed and Renzi's promised economic plans and potential investors are now scuppered with his resignation. Of course, his resignation also means an early election, and while the Democratic Party are still very popular, right-wing parties have seized on the referendum results saying it's a liberation day from the government and fake news has been spreading across the country, much like the US, which all leads to people thinking that the right-wing might have quite a resurgence. The upcoming election is very likely to be between the Democratic Party, which was Renzi's party, the far-right and centre-right bloc party, Northern League, who are quite worrying, and M5S, or the Five Star Movement, which is led by a comedian called Beppe Grillo, who could potentially be the second populist clown elected into leadership of a country in 12 months. So, who knows what will happen now, but I guess Italians love a pizza. the action either way. I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. And lastly, the Prime Minister of New Zealand has resigned, which I think means that it's one of the other four citizens that turns to have a go. I think that's how it works there. (laughs) I joke, I know there's six people in New Zealand. Um, John Key announced his resignation after eight years in office, mainly it seems after pressure from his wife to spend more time with his family. Isn't it incredible that while John Key resigns in order to spend more time with his family, in the USA Donald Trump has taken up office in order to stay at home more and spend more time with his? Weird. John Key's leadership resulted in New Zealand having one of the fastest economic growths in the developing world uh, over the last few years, but that has partly come as a result of New Zealanders working harder and much, much longer hours, which many are unhappy with, and increasingly rising property costs, causing a dangerous housing crisis. So, if John was the key to New Zealand's growth, let's hope the next prime minister has the secret to making it work for everyone. Oh God, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'm so so sorry. All I'm saying is that with two prime ministers resigning across the globe this week, one unelected, let's hope Theresa May is on board with global political trends as she is with leather trousered fashion ones, eh? Fingers crossed. More global news soon. And now back to Emma. And and just just as you mentioned, their polit uh, politicians uh, sort of pushing the health tourism line. Do you? I mean, I, I can sort of almost guess what your answer might be, but do you think? Politicians are standing up for the NHS enough? I mean, it's really, uh, you know, as I said, there's this, the narrative of NHS target failures or that it's got enough funding or that health tourism's a problem. Um, are there any politicians that are really spouting the correct line on the NHS?
2: There are some politicians, um, very few, but some, uh, who stick up for the NHS. Caroline Lucas and Margaret Greenwood, a Green Party and a Labour Party MP, respectively, Both been responsible in this parliament for um, putting forward the NHS bill, the NHS reinstatement bill, which aims to reverse the privatisation uh, of the last decade or so. Um, Margaret Greenwood, in particular, before she was elected, um, was involved in NHS activism. Um, And there there are some others who have understanding and advocate for particular problems in the NHS. So, um, Dr. Sarah Wollaston has been very involved, uh, who's a a Conservative MP, has been very involved in in talking about uh, the training opportunities for doctors and other staff and the problem of emigration. So, um, increasingly, uh, doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals who, who find the NHS is becoming really a horrible place to work are moving to Australia and New Zealand and America and Canada and and other countries. And we have a situation where health professionals who came here to work from other countries, or who came here to train and work from other countries, return to their home countries, um, wherever they are in the world, which is causing the staffing crisis.
1: Sure, because I mean, because you're uh, sorry to interrupt there, but because I, I heard sort of reports that there are far fewer applications for, for medical um, students this year than there have been last year. I mean, you, as, as a current medical student yourself, do you feel like there's a, there must be a very low morale amongst medical students? Do, do you, are you noticeably seeing that, that people aren't applying? Is it, you know, less people going for it? Um, I think there
2: is low morale. Um, but I'm not sure that the applications and the morale are are necessarily related in this case. Um, there there have always been more applicants than there are places, and um, so we will have to go a long way before we don't fill the places at medical school. And I and I'm inclined to, to make a different connection um, than to morale. Um, and that connection is to the removal of bursaries and the rising of fees. Sure. Um, and I'm not entirely certain whether that's correlation or, or causation, um, but the, the application, the reduction in applications um, has been happening for a couple of years now in a way that um, the, the poor morale and, and the the dreadful conditions and contract disputes and so on have not been in the news for as long as the numbers have been falling.
1: Right. because Does that mean then, because another thing that Jeremy Hunt proposed, uh, I think it was last week, was that there were going to be new apprenticeships, especially so say nurses could train to be doctors while on the job, which sounds like as if they haven't got enough work to do already. Um, but do they? Is, is that actually a good incentive then?
2: Um, no, in my opinion. All nursing courses became degree level in two thousand and twelve, two thousand and thirteen, and and that was an absolutely excellent um, move for nursing as a profession. Um, Our nursing colleagues are extremely skilled, um, and and are a valuable profession in their own right. Um, They they do not need to learn to become doctors, um, though if they want to. they can come to medical school. Um, you know, they are different jobs. Being a doctor and being a nurse are different jobs that both have value. Um, and if you want to, you know, if I wanted to become a nurse, I would go and do a, a nursing degree because I know that that's the, the best way to train to be a nurse. And um, the removal of the NHS bursary for our nursing colleagues and other allied health professionals and the move towards some kind of apprenticeship is in my view uh, a move towards de-skilling nurses again which is uh, absolutely terrifying we we know that degree trained nurses have reduced um, mortality rates on wards they're more likely to spot mistakes that we make um, degree trained nurses are excellent and i would be very very disappointed if we were going back if we went backwards um, to the um, the apprenticeship type schemes. I think some of that is the uh, the concern has been raised around these ideas of too posh to wash, or um, you know, the idea that if you train nurses academically, that that they won't have as many practical skills. Um, and that's complete rubbish. the The degrees are uh, absolutely vocational. Nurses, nursing students, and midwifery students spend most of their time um, on placement, Um, and and third years, the the final year nursing students often have cases of their own, um, looking after patients in days, as they will do when they graduate. I mean,
1: this is also, I've not heard the two bosh to wash uh, line before, but the, the The, the, the contradiction in that surely is that we're, you know, we're as we're currently going through Brexit, that's going to hinder NHS staffing quite a lot. So we apparently don't want people to come here to be nurses, but then we don't want people to train <laughs> here to be nurses either. So that seems a very strange uh, contradiction in terms. Yeah,
2: um, I think if the, the, the removal of the NHS bursary and um, the increase in medical student places, are both touted as um, a ways to increase uh, medical and nursing staffing in the NHS, but you're quite right. The um, reduction in, in EU um, migrants coming here to do those jobs might well mean that there is no increase in staffing at all. Um,
1: wow. Well, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's quite, it's quite bleak. I mean, I, I do worry every time I do one of these interviews for the show, uh, it always ends uh, with everyone going, yes, this is really quite bleak. So um am trying to think of something sort of positive to finish. Obviously, aside from uh, Jeremy Hunt having an accident, uh, what, how can the, nar- how do you think narrative needs to change? What's the, you mentioned that Sarah Wollaston, you mentioned that uh, Caroline Lucas um, and, and the other MPs are really pushing uh, for things to, to be better. What's What's the the next step? Uh, what what's the big different, big change that needs to happen?
2: Um, I think there needs to be a commitment from all parties that the NHS should be a publicly funded, publicly provided, uh, universal healthcare service. Um, not all parties agree with that. and um, The Conservative Party are quite obviously moving away from that. Um, UKIP's new leader thinks we should privatise the NHS. Um, I am personally a member of the Labour Party, and I am a member of the Labour Party because I believe um, that the NHS is the best possible healthcare system in the world and that we should restore it. Um, and, and I hope that the excellent policy passed at Labour Party Conference this year will become um, the, uh, you know, the the focus of discussion around what happens in the NHS. <coughs> um, We need um, there to be far more awareness about what what is happening in the NHS amongst the public because so far, um, since the Health and Social Care Act of 2013, um, we've had stealthy um, privatisation, increasing underfunding and understaffing, and most people have not noticed. Um, And the NHS has been running on the goodwill of staff just about keep it afloat but eventually that is going to run out and jeremy hunt is is pushing us ever closer to the point where the goodwill of staff completely runs out and some people are leaving um and and some people are leaving the profession and some people are leaving the country and some people are just getting tired and until we have a, a mass campaign around What we want our NHS to be, and the fact that we need our NHS to be publicly funded, publicly provided, and universal, this is going to continue to get worse. Um, And I'm hopeful um, that there will be a political will for that kind of campaign, Um, and that's why I'm a member of the Labour Party in order to try and make that happen. Um, but really it, it needs more than just NHS workers to get involved, but the users of NHS
1: services as well. And, and in terms of uh, you saying that people need to be more informed, uh, aside from uh, your Twitter and, and sort of British Medical Association, are there any websites or accounts uh, that people should read or that listeners to this show could check out for useful actual info on the current NHS situation?
2: Yeah, so um, keep our NHS public. Um, has a have a wonderful website you will be able to find it and um, by googling keep our nhs public um, and health campaigns together um also have excellent resources particularly on the sustainability and transformation plans health campaigns together is a is a group of health campaigns and um, made up of both national campaigns and local campaigns. So for example the Save Lewisham Hospital campaign or the Save Chorley A E campaign. Um, they all have all come together um, to produce shared resources um, and they they produce a paper as well that explains uh, up to date information on what's happening in the NHS. So those two websites both have a whole series of resources. And um, if you're on Twitter um, you can follow other other doctors um, like Clive Pidal or David Wrigley or Jackie Davis, all of whom tweet regularly about the situation in the NHS um, from a very political perspective um, because they understand that most of our problems are political um, issues rather than healthcare issues. Um, So those are good places to go for, for further information. And if you wanted to get involved in campaigning, you'd you'd find your way to your local campaign through those places as well. The NHS is brilliant. Um, The staff are incredibly hardworking and the patients um, often make my day. And we can fight for our NHS to stay excellent. It's (laughs) quite nice. You know, I, I don't come home upset every day, you know, I I study in and I'm training to be something absolutely wonderful and you know, um, if you if you speak to most doctors although the situation is is depressing around contracts and underfunding and hospital closures and so on most of us still love it it's a fulfilling job
1: Many thanks to Emma for speaking with me um you can find emma on Twitter at uh E. Rumswick BMA, that's E R U N S W I C K B M A. BMA. Uh, the BMA, British Medical Association, are also on Twitter at the BMA, which makes sense. Keep it easy. Uh, as are Keep Our NHS Public, who can be found out, yeah, that's right, at Keep NHS Public. Ah, oh, did you think the R was going to be in there? It wasn't, psych. Uh, or on their website, of course, at KeepOurNHSPublic.com. Uh, the other website that Emma recommended was healthcampaignstogether.com, so do check them out as well. Um, and I think I've got all guests sorted between now and Christmas, hopefully. But if you have anyone else you think I should interview or a subject you'd like me to talk to someone about, please do drop me a line at Parpoel on Twitter, Parpoel on Facebook, Partly Political broadcast on gmail.com, or perhaps just scroll it on your forehead and marker pen and then try and run past someone reporting on the news. Chances are I just might see it. And that's all for this week's show. Uh, Thanks again for listening, or at least pretending to listen. And if you do enjoy the show, don't forget to recommend it to other people. Or maybe play it to them, perhaps. Or if you work in retail, just substitute it for all the shitty Christmas music you have to play and repeat every day for a month. Trust me, your colleagues and customers will be so pleased not to have to hear Wizard talking about how they wished it was Christmas every day, despite not understanding the devastating economic consequences of that, that they will listen to pretty much anything and feel happy about it. Don't forget to give us a review on iTunes, uh, give me all of your money via patreon.com forward slash bro and cheer yourself up regularly by thinking about Zach Goldsmith's sad, sad face like someone stretched a carp and gave it hair. This week's show is brought to you by the number 46.7%, which really isn't as low as we'd like it to be, and the number 10 billion pounds that when you look at it is actually £4.5 billion, pounds, like the world's shittest illusion.